Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Sam Lowe. Sam Lowe is a senior researcher at the think tank, the Centre for European Reform. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should point out that I'm on the advisory board of the CER. We have about 20 minutes, hopefully, Sam. I'd like to talk about a number of things. Um, obviously, we're going to start with Brexit because you all know an awful lot about it, uh, both the withdrawal agreement and the future trading negotiations, which will take place if and when the UK does actually leave the EU sometime in the next three months or so. But then moving on to the, the new European Commission and what you expect the new uh, Commissioner for Trade, Phil Hogan, to, to, to do in, in terms of various deals in his entry. And then finally, um, a broader picture stuff on the, the geopolitics of trade and the so-called weaponization of trade. So first of all, Brexit, Sam, um, the, the, the Boris Johnson withdrawal agreement, um, people are saying it's a particularly hard Brexit and harder than Theresa May's withdrawal agreement Brexit. So what do you, from your point of view, what are the main differences between the Theresa May deal uh, and the Boris Johnson deal from a trade perspective, obviously? From a trade perspective, I th- I- I think the core difference is that the Johnson deal leaves the possibility that the final relationship is much, much harder than the May deal did. And the reason for that is that the May deal uh, had an all-UK element when it came to the backstop for Northern Ireland. So if, in the event that at the end of the transition period, either the UK hadn't negotiated a future relationship with the EU or was still in the process of negotiating a future relationship with the EU, we know that the whole UK would enter into a customs union with the European Union and Northern Ireland would have supplementary regulatory uh, effect, uh, things in place in order to ensure that the border could remain open between the North and South. The Johnson deal strips out the all-UK element, so we know... And it also stops the backstop from being an insurance policy. It just becomes the permanent state of being for Northern Ireland. So it moves to a Northern Ireland-specific approach, which would see uh, Northern Ireland remain in the EU's single markets for goods and agri-food, de facto, and also, practically speaking, be within the EU's customs union, although there's technicalities about how that would work in practice. Whereas the races of Great Britain would be able to, would be free to do whatever it wants. And the issue we have here is that at the end of the transition period, if the UK has failed to negotiate a relationship, a future relationship with the EU, unlike Theresa May's agreement where we'd have entered into a customs union, we could actually, at the end of this transition period, revert to trading with the EU on w- under our WTO commitments, or at least Great Britain could. Northern Ireland would have these supplementary Okay. Uh, supplementary uh, measures in place. In the in the current negotiation, I know things have been interrupted and paused by the Prime Minister because of the general election being called, but if at some point uh, we go back to, in the House of Commons, discussion of the withdrawal agreement and the withdrawal agreement bill, to be precise, and there were to be amendments tabled and approved by the Parliament, for example, with respect to the, uh, uh, the insertion of a customs union, um, to what extent does that mean that, that the E27 have to be re, recontacted and, and asked for their approval of that? I'm slightly confused about the procedure. I think a lot of people are. Well, I think, yes, there's a lot of uncertainty about, around what British politicians would actually want here. I'm not sure a customs union amendment would pass, but if it were to pass, it then depends what part of the agreement they want to insert this into. So if it's they want to actually rework the withdrawal agreement to return to Theresa May's proposed agreement which had a customs union built into it with all of the associated level playing field commitments and the like that would definitely require a renegotiation if we're talking about 
the parliamentarians would like the political declaration on the future relationship, the non-binding document that accompanies the withdrawal agreement, to be amended to suggest that the preferred future relationship would be a customs union. So, yes, some things would need to change, but that's a lot less difficult. That's, that's not so difficult to do, right. I don't think. But I'm not, I'm not sure that's where we end up. The one thing I would say about the future relationship is that, to my mind, the nature of the future EU-UK relationship is entirely dependent on who is negotiating it from the UK side. Right. So if it's Boris Johnson, we know that he will aim for a pretty standard free trade agreement He'll probably try and push it a little bit in some areas beyond what the EU's model would usually allow. But that just means zero tariffs, you would think. But in terms of how the border works, we're talking about import-export declarations, regulatory controls. In terms of services, we're talking about not very much at all. Potentially, the EU would have an equivalence ruling on some aspects of financial services and an adequacy ruling in data. But we're not talking about anything very substantial. So we know that's the Johnson aim. But if it was being negotiated, for example, by a Corbyn government, which yeah. isn't impossible, it's, it's something that could happen, then we know that Labour would prioritise a much, much closer, more integrated relationship with the EU. And that would actually, in a way, be a harder negotiation because yeah. we're talking about Labour potentially trying to replicate something that looks like the Swiss model, right. which, which actually, went from an EU perspective, causes far more questions to be asked. Yeah, like a softer version of the deal maybe. Um, exactly. Uh, on the level playing field stuff, I mean now that we're in general election campaign uh, mode and to some extent we all know that the general election is a kind of unofficial ref- referendum on our future or continued membership of the EU, uh, this issue about level playing fields is clearly going to be an issue in the campaign and I just wondered how significant when the Brexiteers say it doesn't really, Brexiteers say it doesn't really matter that uh, commitments on environment, social standards, labour standards, etc., will be discussed in the future as, a part, as opposed to being part of the withdrawal agreement. And of course, the Remainers say it's highly significant that Boris Johnson has put those into the, the future for future discussion. Where, where do you stand on that? It's a it's a mixed bag. I think. The reason the level playing field commitments are no longer contained within the withdrawal agreement is because the all UK element of the backstop was stripped from the withdrawal agreement. Okay. So, so, so no, that, it's not a nefarious plot. It's not a nefarious plot because the EU no longer had a justification for including them in there because there is no all UK element. There's still level playing field commitments in place for Northern Ireland specifically, right, but okay. they couldn't justify it in relation to the whole of the UK. But saying that, it was a UK. It was. It's known to be a UK ambition to strip them from the withdrawal agreement. However, my feeling is that all that's happened is the can has been kicked. When and if the future, we get to a period, where, a stage where we're discussing the future relationship, I can predict quite confidently the EU is going to bring all of these level playing field commitments back and say, uh, condition of you having a tariff and quota free trade agreement with the EU is that you sign up to these level playing field commitments. Yes, we know it's unfair. We don't endorse this of Japan or Canada, but you're closer and big. So, and then that will be a negotiation, right, <laughs> and, yeah. and we'll have to see how that how that plays out in practice. Okay. Another area of confusion seems to me is that um, Boris Johnson and his colleagues in the cabinet certainly have been trying to reassure people that um, don't spend too much time. Let's get Brexit done, quote unquote. In other words, let's get let's get with a withdrawal agreement bill through the House of Commons, and then there's everything everything to play for in the discussion on a future trading relationship and the future relationships beyond trade as well as you know better than I do, security, etc. Having said that, uh, to what extent? Again, there's not a lot of 
clarity there, people are genuinely, genuinely confused. Without, obviously, the, the length of the discussions is one thing, and the level of detail is another thing in the future relationship, the negotiation. But also, what I'm keen to know is to what extent the, the withdrawal agreement bill, if it is approved by the end of January and the UK leaves at the end of January, um, we, that is very much sets the, the, in quite stark terms the parameters of the future negotiation and kind of binds the future government to, to, to actually act within, certain, within these parameters. Or is it still genuinely everything to play for? Well, it sets the direction of travel. And if the Johnson government wins, wins a general election and passes that withdrawal agreement bill then that will set broadly the parameters of the negotiation as he intends it to go forward. But my point would be, as with everything to do with British politics, is if if he's not in charge and someone else is in charge and they have a majority, yeah. they can they can change it. Right. So 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 yes, it it binds a government to do something so long as that's what they want to do. But another government with a different majority could do yeah. something else. So, so I think people focus a little bit too much on the legislation when actually they just need to focus on the question of who is in charge, who is negotiating right. this, what do they want. And my, my feeling in the long run is, so say if we have a 20-year perspective, and if we assume the UK does leave, what sort of relationship does the UK have with the EU? I think it's one that economically looks similar to Switzerland, so quite integrated on goods. Uh, on services, I'm slightly less sure. Maybe it comes to the customs union, maybe it doesn't. And the reason I say that is that we have to assume that one day in this 20-year period, there will be a government in place in the UK who says, actually, we want a close relationship with the EU. Yeah. And the moment they do, they will try and negotiate that. And also, the other second reason is economic gravity. It's very difficult to find a business group in the UK that actually wants to diverge from the EU in any meaningful way. So even if we are in a sort of arm's length relationship, the sort that Johnson wants, most businesses will continue to conform with EU approaches and EU standards. And there'll be a question at some point where they say, well, we're conforming with these anyway, but we're not getting the full benefits of doing so because there's these border controls, there's these regulatory barriers because we don't have a deep enough agreement in place. And that's what we want. So I feel that gravity does mean that eventually the UK and EU relationship is quite close, but the the big question is how how volatile is the process of getting there? How disruptive is that process? Okay, well, one area of confusion, it depends actually which camp is putting it forward. That's what the Brexiters will say. Uh, We're over worrying and and the Remainers Mm -hmm. exaggerating the, the length of these protracted, so-called protracted negotiations will take place after departure uh, because the UK is, is leaving and we're already, as you just hinted, uh, probably pretty much where we are aligned in so many areas. In other words, there won't be an awful lot to negotiate, they say. I'm simplifying maybe a very complex argument by saying that. The Remainers, of course, and maybe more independent, neutral uh, commentators and analysts and, uh, would say that you will know it's going to be a very lengthy pr- pr- process because of all, the, all these details will come out from all different directions. So again, where, where do you stand on that? I think the transition period will need to be extended. I'm not as fully on board with people who say this will inevitably take ages. Um, and people often use say the example of the EU negotiating trade agreement which Canada took seven years but the negotiation rounds were every few months so the, the, the right. largely they're just waiting for the political moment where it could be concluded right. and, but in, if you think the Theresa May's government managed to negotiate a customs union in about two weeks so you can negotiate things right. quickly if, if you need to but the reason I think it will be extended is I think firstly 
people in the UK don't understand what trading under a Johnson Star Free Trade Agreement means yet. Right. And in practice, for most businesses, it is the same as no deal, but with the added bonus that you can maybe get zero tariffs, which isn't nothing, but in yeah. terms of having to deal with stuff at the border and all of that, that's all the same as if we're trading under no deal. So once that seeps into the conversation, I think there will be pressure on the government to try and achieve something more. Right. And as soon as that happens, you have a wider negotiation. The second reason is the EU will make demands of the UK, particularly on level playing field issues, right. that I think a Johnson government will initially find it difficult to concede to because they said they won't. In practice, I think we could just concede to it and it, it, it would be fine. But right. then we don't actually want to roll back most of these protections anyway, so, right. so why not? And then the third reason is... If we do pursue an agreement such as Johnson wants and conclude that with the EU, it's actually quite a big difference. There's, there would be quite a big difference from what exists now. So from day so from the end of the transition to day one of this new agreement would be like no, no deal happening at yes. the end of October. So I think that there will need to be an implementation period in the meantime to gradually phase these new barriers in because otherwise you've just created the same problem that we've tried to avoid now. Yeah. Well, again, another area of confusion where, where I feel like clarity, and that's why this podcast for me is very, is very educational, Sam, is that um, notwithstanding now the further delay till 31st of January, uh, unless I'm mistaken, and you will put me right if I am mistaken, the decision has to be taken by the 1st of July 2020 whether or not to extend the transition period, mm -hmm. right? Right, thank you. Uh, but that means, given the delay in departure, we only have, what, five months to, to discuss and to even work out whether we need an extension. Again, can you right. clarify things, please? Well, well, so that's that, that. I think I think that's the date. But I, 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 I'm not. I'm next July. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure you're right about it being the first. Uh, but yes. Yeah, so, so, so we need to decide quite early on whether we want to extend the transition period. However, whilst that is the official deadline, my feeling is even if we were not to extend then, and decide actually we want to extend later on, so long as both the EU and UK want to do it, right. it can be made to happen. Okay. I'm fairly pragmatic on these sorts of things and not so legalistic. If, if both the UK and EU wanted to extend and make and took that decision after that date, would it happen? I think yes. Okay, a well, quick last question on the Brexit side. We are talking a bit too much because it's my fault. Too many questions on the Brexit part of this podcast. A quick last question on the Brexit bit, uh, Sam. Um, you know a lot of Brexiters again saying that they, and again, the nefarious plot maybe uh, springs to mind that if a no, no deal is in place by the end of the transition period, the end of uh, 2020, then we crash out and therefore they're kind of half hoping that that will happen. You're suggesting though that we will just carry on negotiating. Well, I'm, I'm suggesting that if Johnson, the Johnson government did not want to crash out on no deal now, why would they want to do so? then when the economic consequences of doing so are pretty much identical. Right. Because whilst so there were some differences in that we would have the withdrawal agreement in place so citizens' rights would have been resolved, for example, and also we would know what would happen in the case of Northern Ireland, so there would be a structure in place there. But for businesses in Great Britain, it would be pretty yeah. much the same as if we crashed out now and the Johnson government has bottled it once. Why right. wouldn't they bottle it again? Yeah. So is it possible that we could leave at the end of that period and trade on under our WTO commitments, so a no-deal type scenario. Yeah, yes, of course it's possible, and that's one of the reasons people are a bit more concerned about the Johnson approach. Mm. But is it probable? I don't think so. Right, okay. Okay, well, let's move on to the to the European Union and, and the broader trade picture. Um, 
it's not just Brexit which has been delayed. The the uh, coming into office of the new European Commission has been delayed, as you know, and we're still waiting to have a a, a date for that. But we have the, the Commission is more or less in place, but they are they're designate. We have a new European Commissioner designate for trade, Phil Hogan, the current Agriculture Commissioner, and you've written a, a lot about that recently, including for Encompass um, about the, the new challenges that the new Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan will have vis-à-vis uh, -vis the, the Green Lobby in particular, and because you're, you've been writing extensively about how trade deals now have to recognize the, the the green element or the sustainable development element and that's a relatively new a new new concept in trade uh, discussions isn't it well, well so, so, so it's something that's lingered for a while so it's, so, so it's been around the trade discussion for a while but the reason i think it's more salient at this point in time is because of the last european parliament elections which saw the greens perform much better than people expected they now make up a significant, hold a significant number of seats in the European Parliament. But then the second reason is I feel that issues on the environment and climate change um, have more public resonance right. at the moment. We've seen it with the Extinction Rebellion, with Greta, we see it uh, with the forest fires in the Amazon over the summer. People do care about these. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a need for the EU to ensure that its economic and trade policies are coherent in the context of its ambitions on the environment and labour, where it can rightfully say, at least on a global context, it is a leader. They right. do, we do do more in those areas than others, but any incoherence, I think, will be picked on. And one of the reasons I think this is important for Hogan's brief and I should caveat by all of this saying I'm, I'm a sort of lapsed hippie. So, so, so this does feed into... You just grow older, that's all. Just to be fully upfront about this, I do have priors on, on some of these issues. <laughs> but, but, but the reason I think this, this is important for Hogan's brief is what's one of the things he's going to be tasked with delivering is get ratifying the Mercosur, right? Which is still not ratified. Which right. is not ratified, so it's been it's been agreed. And as it stands, it's very difficult to see how it gets signed off from the member states. We've already seen France and Austria speak against it, and the European Parliament. And why is that? It's because there are concerns over particularly the Brazilian, so Bolsonaro's mm. environmental record. There's fears that they'll backslide on the Paris commitments, and also the Amazon's been burning down all summer. So what needs to happen in order to both substantially address those concerns in the eyes of the European Parliament and also ensure that this trade is something that Brazil still wants to sign up to? Because if you're intending to use this as leverage to ensure they maintain, they abide by these, existing, by these commitments they've made on, on the environment, they still have to want to sign the agreement. So there is a balancing act. And one right. of the proposals I've made in the paper I've just released today, actually, it's on the day we're talking, yeah. is that rather than overhauling the EU's entire approach to trade and sustainable development, which there have been discussions about it before and making it all entirely enforceable, I suggest on specific areas, so for example on the Paris commitments, making tariff-free access to the EU contingent on continued uh, on, on, the, on, on going to continued progress. So Brazil, in this example, continue, uh, meeting its commitments to reduce emissions by X amount by 2025. So not asking anything new of Brazil, right. but just saying, implement we expect you, you say. implement what you said you'll implement. Otherwise, in the proposal I made, we're not going to lower our, to continue to give you lower, uh, lower tariffs on your agri-food exports to the EU. So much more narrow, and this isn't this isn't a new approach. The US have used it previously in some of their negotiations, particularly on labour rights in the context of Vietnam. So so it's building on existing practice, 
and being very specific about issues. It's not a broad thing, it's just on these specific commitments that we've identified. And my hope there is that, A, it would ensure that Brazil, in this case, actually does continue to abide by its climate commitments, which is a global, that would be a global good. And then, B, it allows the European Parliament to look at the agreement and say, yes, this does is coherent with our ambitions on the environment, and we are confident that it would ensure that Brazil wouldn't behave in a manner that we feel would be detrimental to the environment. Okay. Well, let's move briefly on to the last bit of this chat, Sam. Uh, what's now increasingly referred to as the, the weaponization of trade. I mean, you you know, and you can again put me straight, um, or at least put in perspective for me. Um, trade wars have always been around, right? They they're not a new a new idea. We talk about them more now because the media focus is is, is more acute. But in a kind of in a historical perspective, is that the current EU uh, US China triangle their uh, tensions are, are they particularly uh, uh, just nothing new in particular or they are a particular new form of, uh, of standoff which are which is kind of worrying for the those people who believe in, in in free trade I think what we're seeing is built on tensions that have existed before but but it's certainly an escalation it is a new period in which we have to find that decide what we're going to do I suppose as, as, as the EU and I think the problem the EU has is that we are quite focused on maintaining the rules-based system, so trying to be constructive at the WTO, but also in that context having to defend ourselves from actors such as the US who don't care about that anymore, the US under Trump. And then with China, China it abides by the system but it doesn't, who knows, we've got issues with China as well as the EU but we don't quite agree with dealing with it the same way as the US. So the struggle for the EU is how to position itself in all of this and one argument is that we should just wait, the EU should just wait Trump out. Mm. So we yeah. we do what we can in the meantime but once Trump goes everything will return to normal or at least a modicum of normality will return. We can go back to working through things at the WTO, we can make some progress there and fix it. But then the other argument, and this is one this is one that I make, is that what if this disruption is here to stay? What if Trump has a second term? Right. What if even there is a if there is a democratic president, they continue to take a really hard line on China? Yeah. Yes, they might be more constructive with how they work with the EU, but without China on board, the WTO reform doesn't happen. Yeah, and Democrats how, can be protectionists, just like Republicans. Uh, it, 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 or more so. So, <laughs> so, 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 what if this is a long-term issue? How does the EU respond to that? And I suppose my argument is that. It needs to focus more, it needs to create embed resilience into its own trading systems. If the WTO is no longer the place for the rules-based system, it needs to create new agreements or build on existing agreements to ensure that there are rules in place with as many other partners as possible so that any disruption is, is minimised. And one of my suggestions is that it really needs to refocus on its region. So, so we're talking Turkey, North Africa, just... I mean, and even what happened with Macedonia recently with, mm. with France, but that's not great from this perspective because if we can tie together the region right. economically outside the EU, yeah, uh, so the region around yes, yeah. so, so so the periphery, the periphery, and actually continue to link them in, then that provides at least regional stability from an economic perspective. Is this tough? Yes, I mean Turkey is not a difficult, easy topic to talk about at the moment, no. but and talking about upgrading the customs union with them is even more difficult. Yeah. But from an economic resilience perspective, it is important to start thinking about it. And then the second 
proposal I make is that I think probably we do need to get Mercosur over the line. Right. I think that is important, and we've discussed earlier in the in the podcast about some of the means I think that could happen. And then the other is about Australia, New Zealand. And my point with Australia and New Zealand isn't necessarily that they're big economies that we should... You know, there's not going to be much economic benefit from doing agreements with them. But once we do have agreements with Australia and New Zealand, that means the EU would have an agreement with most of the TPP countries. It would create this web of consensus from which potentially we could build talks of new plurilateral agreements. I'm not talking about anything like the EU joining TPPP. It wouldn't. It doesn't work as a model. But at least the dialogue between the two right. groupings could be helpful in terms of just keeping things ticking over with coalitions of the willing until and if the US decides to return to playing a constructive role. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Sam Lowe, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.